Um, thank you. Um, I actually wasn't sure what I wanted to talk about here because there's so many interesting things going on in the Middle East, and I have some old projects I've worked on and some new projects I'm working on. So um, after consultation, I uh, decided I'd talk mostly about my book. Um, I gave a talk on this about a year and a half ago um, here uh, where I focused on the theoretical side of the book. So here I'm going to summarize the theoretical side of the book and focus on a lot of the empirical detail from the cases. So you can really get a sense of these two case studies I'm looking at. Um, I also have an article um, on women's participation in Islamist parties. It's a different topic, but I'm happy to talk about it if people are interested in the question and answer period. Um, just as a, at the outset to say, a lot of people tend to think, for reasons that makes no sense, that Islamists are all men. And of course, there are women activists as well, and we ought to be paying attention to them. And so I'm happy to talk about some of my research on that as well. So. Um, among the most abiding concerns um, for thinking about democratization in the Middle East is the question of the role of Islamic political parties. The debate about whether they should be included or included, included or excluded has sometimes been framed in terms of the paradox of democracy, and that is the idea that a group might use democratic processes to come to power and only to overturn those powers um, and undo dem the democratic process. So that's framed as one man, one vote, one time. In the Middle East and increasingly elsewhere in the world, the potential for Islamist groups to act in this way is most often cited to justify the lack of pro progress towards democracy. And that's cited not only by the regimes that don't really want to democratize, that say, look, we would democratize if only we didn't have these pesky Islamists here, but also by foreign agencies that, that are offering funding and then supporting these repressive regimes. Um, and there are a lot of Islamists participating in elections all over the place. Um, this is not a surprise. It sometimes is a surprise to people that they do, but there's a long 20-year history, even longer, pretty much where there's elections and Islamists are welcome to participate. They have always participated. There hasn't been a real obstacle for them in doing so. Among the more recent ones, besides Jordan and Yemen, which I'll talk about, Iraq, of course, Egypt, Lebanon, uh, Palestine, Turkey, Algeria, and many other places, Kuwait. Um, in the elections in last year, uh, two years ago in uh, Iraq and Egypt and Palestine, Islamists did very well in some of those elections. Um, there's a presidential election last week in Yemen in which Islamists supported an opposition candidate. So that was a very interesting process. So there's a lot going on here. And so the first plea is that we ought not to lump together Islamists as if it's some single phenomenon that we can then understand as opposed to non-Islamists. So that my interventions today are going to be um, put forth in that spirit. So there's a vast body of literature that examines Islamist movements, and the overwhelming consensus is that Islamist groups per se are not the threat to democracy that um, they're often made out to be. For one thing, most Islamist groups have never sought radical political change. That is, they're best described as reformers rather than militant revolutionaries. Radicals are the exception. Radicals are also in the spotlight, which is why we tend to see them more, even though numerically they're a minority, a small percentage of the group. Um, they also have very wide and diverse support bases, and these are things we ought to be paying more attention to. Who supports them? For another thing, Islamist groups that do participate in elections tend to win blocks that seldom exceed a third of the assemblies, and they're usually much lower. More importantly, most Islamist groups do worse in subsequent rounds of elections. Do they do well the first time? Constituents are saying, okay, what are you providing? How effective are you? And in subsequent elections, they tend to do much worse. 
Um, and finally, most Islamist groups are not the real obstacles to radical or to democratic reform, as I suggested. I, I think the real obstacles are the repressive regimes that do not want to see meaningful political participation. They don't want to see democratic reform. They're about preserving their own rule. They might talk a good democratic game and then put forth explanations why they don't move forward. Um, None of this is to say Islamists aren't a serious concern, but, none, but uh, for some regimes, and there are some radical groups, absolutely. But the burden gets placed on Islamist groups in ways that are just not true to empirically what is happening. So we want to try to take that apart. Um, in the study of Middle East politics, the major preoccupation since the 1990s has overwhelmingly been democratization, and this is broadly reflected in a lot of the social sciences in general. Um, in the Middle East, specialists have studied the topic pretty exhaustively. They've looked at topics of the resilience of authoritarianism, democratization, the role of civil society, radical groups, moderate groups, um, the relationship between political and economic reforms. Pretty much all the topics that uh, exist in social science have been applied to the Middle East. Um, as um, uh, Craig mentioned briefly, I worked at the International Peace Academy on a project on civil society in the Middle East. Um, in the mid 90s, early and mid 90s, and that focused on what civil society groups were out there, what they were doing, how they were pressing for change, etc. Um, so there's a lot of literature out there. In any case, the, the question of participation of Islamist groups in democratic processes has been a preoccupation, particularly since September 11th. Again, it didn't begin then, but it's that's, uh, escalated since then. Hundreds of books and articles, as you'll see anytime you walk in a bookstore or go on Amazon. Um, they explore these questions of the compatibility of Islam and democracy, um, the role of Islamists, are Islamists a threat to democracy, to liberal values, etc. Um, these questions, of course, are you know, important political significance. Question of Islam and democracy per se, are these two ideologies compatible? This is a topic that's been looked at at least since the mid-80s. We've beat it to death. It's an important topic, but um, more and more books revisiting sort of abstract ideologies, can they work or not, I think missed the point. What I think we need to do is actually study the movements, what they're doing, particularly Islamist groups, who they're participating, who they're cooperating with, um, et cetera. And so one of the examples I'm going to talk about in more detail when I get to the latter portion of this talk is how Islamist groups have begun cooperating with uh, communists and other leftists and socialists and liberals, that's to say they're historic rivals. So that's pretty much happened in a number of countries. Um, so the question is when has that started and why? What's led that uh, change, cooperating with groups that were your arch rivals for decades? Um, so I think these are the, the questions we ought to be examining. So in my book, which just came out, um, Faith and Moderation, Islamic Parties in Jordan and Yemen, um, I approach the question of Islam and democracy not by looking at these abstract sets of ideas, but I focus on four years of field research in Jordan and Yemen um, to examine what is, uh, in social science terms, the inclusion-moderation hypothesis. And that's the idea that groups that start participating in democratic or pluralist processes become more moderate as a result. Um, in this regard, I want to take seriously the concern about Islamists and the paradox of democracy. Rather than say, oh, all Islamists aren't a threat, which I think is true, I want to take that concern seriously and put it at the center of my research agenda. Um, before I go on, I should say a bit about what I mean by moderation. By moderation, I mean a change along a continuum from a relatively radical, closed, exclusive worldview where I'm right and no one else is right, there's no possibility for any alternative, to one that's more open to 
uh, open to any, and potentially tolerant of alternative views. So you could say from a closed view to a more pluralist view. That's my definition of moderation. It's not the definition that everyone uses. You'll see if you look at literature on moderation, people say radically different things. One of the things they tend to say is there are radicals that use political violence and moderates who don't use political violence, and moderation means moving from one category to another. That's not the definition I'm using, but that's a definition that comes out there a lot. Um, another definition of moderation isn't just becoming more open and pluralist towards other views, but actually embracing liberal and democratic values. So I think it's important when you're comparing arguments people are making to look precisely at what they're claiming. What counts as moderation? And then you can evaluate whether you think they've made that case or not. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the question here is, how can we tell when political actors are becoming more moderate um, as they participate in pluralist processes and which ones are playing by the rules of the game but harboring these secret radical agendas that are very um, anti-moderate? It seems to me that the stakes should be very high, uh, first in terms of simply getting the analysis right, and of course not to mention the practical considerations, policy cons considerations about determining which groups to include and which groups should then be excluded. The inclusion moderation hypothesis suggests that when political actors are included, they will become more moderate as a result. Uh, so I'm going to focus here primarily on the analytical side. That is, I want to put aside, put aside the normative commitments and policy considerations about wanting to make uh, radicals moderate. Um, simply to say analytically, how do we know if someone has become more moderate uh, in terms of the definition that I've given? We would want to be able for sure to identify when a group has meaningly become more moderate, that's when its ideology has changed, um, and when it's merely pretending to be more moderate while remaining uncommitted to um, norms that it's claiming to embrace. Um, of course, I, I, I'm going to focus on Islamist parties. This is a question not only of concern to Islamist parties. Um, some of the early literature that focused on moderation looked at communist and socialist parties in the early 20th century entering democratic processes. So again, this is not about religion. This is not an argument about Islam. My cases are drawn from these um, as an example. So <clears throat> how do you tell whether they're really committed to these processes or not? Well, here we seem to hit a wall. You can establish when groups are taking advantage of political openings. You simply see what they're doing. Uh, we can establish also when they're behaving as if they're committed to pluralist processes and democratic processes. And you can look at their public statements the platforms they put out, what they say in newspapers, press releases, etc. But you cannot really know what's in their hearts, as you can't know what is in anyone's heart and what they really believe. So then how can you distinguish, if all these groups are saying they're democratic, how can you tell which ones are really becoming more committed to these processes? Again, I'm trying to take the hard case. Um, there's a lot of cases that are easy to draw. I'm trying to take the hard case. So this puzzle seems to put us in a difficult spot. If we rely on only what political actors do, that is, if we look only at their behavior, we cannot distinguish between genuinely moderate actors and radical actors that are feigning moderation. I'd like to suggest, and I suggest in my book, that this project is not as hopeless as it seems. Um, and I make two points. One is we can, in fact, specify a precise mechanism for how a political actor might be more moderate. So we can see precisely how that process might take place. This is not an exhaustive mechanism. I'll tell you what it is in a minute. Um, but it's one mechanism that helps us understand how a group could become more moderate, how it could become more open. And the second point I make is that we can establish empirically when such moderation has taken place. There is evidence that we can point to to show a distinction between what you say publicly and more deep commitments um, to these processes. 
and that's the challenge. If I'm correct, then I think we're not really analytically stuck with trusting only what they say or relying only on what their behavior is um, and not knowing what they really believe. <clears throat> Excuse me. If I talk too fast, just let me know. I get excited. Um, so I explore this puzzle of inclusion and moderation through a structured comparative study of two Islamist groups, the Islamic Action Front in Jordan and the Islah Party in Yemen. And I should say there's more than one Islamist group in each party, but if I say the Yemeni Islamists, the Jordanian Islamists, I'm using it shorthand for these two parties for the sake of um, clarity. Um, so I'm arguing that the Islamic Action Front, which is the Jordanian party, has in fact become more moderate um, over the past 15 years because its ideological commitments have evolved and they've become more inclusive and more, more tolerant of alternative views. Um, the Islah party in Yemen, we don't see these changes. We see some changes, but not of the sort that make us, that give us confidence that the group has become more moderate. Yet both parties have participated in elections. They both claim to be committed to democratic norms. They both speak of commitments to democracy, etc. They've both been included, but only one has become ideologically more moderate. So here's the puzzle then, what explains this variation? Um, before answering this question, I want to just uh, raise a few uh, insights that emerge in terms of talking about the paradox of democracy in general um, and this inclusion moderation idea in particular. And then um, after that briefly, I'll talk about my two cases and give you one drawn out example of precisely the mechanism at work and how I think it works. So preliminary observation number one. Much of the literature on democratization in the Middle East, this concern with uh, can the Middle East become democratic, what are the obstacles, et cetera, um, is framed in terms of, of social science literature on democratic transitions. And so we talk about progress along a continuum. Uh, there are stages of democratization. There are certain um, processes that tend to happen at certain stages. So for example, when moderates in the government coordinate with moderates outside of the government, these types of processes. And so a lot of the literature has taken this framework and plopped it on the Middle East, sometimes in interesting ways and sometimes not. Um, what's interesting, though, is most of the cases, and certainly the cases that I'm looking at, Jordan Yemen, are held up as cases of stalled democracy. That is, you had political openings, you have emergence of multi-party politics, you have fairly regular elections. And yet, in other ways, the process has slid back. The government has closed down meaningful spaces for participation in other ways. For example, by saying, um, yes, you can register as a political party, but setting the bar so high, it's very difficult to actually accomplish that. So in the uh, social science literature, these are stalled cases of stalled democracy. So the problem, uh, this preliminary observation number one, the point is that focus on this progress toward democracy at the state level misses the fact that there's often a lot that's happening underneath, either among political activists, opposition groups within civil society, et cetera. So you might have an opening that's then closed or an opening that doesn't go towards democracy. So these states aren't democratic. We don't kid ourselves. And yet a lot happens underneath as a direct result of those openings. And so that's one insight. We need to pay attention to that. And much of what I'm going to talk about today is precisely that groups struggling even though the democratic process hasn't moved forward. Um, preliminary observation number two. Uh, as I argue in my book, um, the inclusion moderation hypothesis appears in a wide range of liter literature, but the specific mechanisms, in fact, poorly specified. So most arguments simply say um, you have moderates and you have radicals, and if you open up the system and allow inclusion, radicals will turn into moderates and you'll have more moderates, and that is the strategy. Um, 
what happens in, the, in a lot of these is you conflate the possible effects of inclusion and exclusion. So the inverse of the inclusion moderation hypothesis is exclusion equals radicalism. And so these are conflated as if it's one continuum from inclusion to exclusion, um, more moderate, more radical, and that if you sort of you know, move the, the switch along that bar, you'll see clear effects. And the project, the NSF project that I'm working on with Craig and others um, is exploring precisely this puzzle that, in fact, that's not what we see. You see diverse effects back and forth. Um, so, for example, entangled in the inclusion moderation hypothesis are several distinct propositions of how inclusion might lead to moderation. So to give just a couple examples, and certainly not an exhaustive list, you could say inclusion leads to moderation by turning radicals into moderates. So you see a net change. You see fewer radicals and more moderates because the radicals see the logic of working within the system. That's one possible thing that could be going on. Another possible thing is um, the way uh, inclusion might work to promote moderation <coughs> is that you don't see less radicals and you don't see moderates change their views, but you have these fence sitters in the middle that then are pulled into the moderate camp. So you see a net increase in moderates but the existing moderates and radicals before haven't really changed their view. Another possibility is that the existing moderates become much more moderate. So you see a change in that regard, but again, the number of radicals isn't necessarily changing. Um, I think there's elements of all these that are true, but more likely, I think, is a second process, which is inclusion provides moderates with more opportunities to build a support base and increase their visibility. So you're not necessarily seeing fewer radicals, but rather what you're seeing is growing support bases for moderates, an elevation of moderates within the system because they've been given opportunities. And I think we can conflate all these different processes to inclusion moderation in ways that don't really tell us a lot. Um, so multiple processes are at work and calling a single moderate uh, inclusion moderation hypothesis um, it calls single hypothesis into question. So the appearance of moderation might have little to do with whether political actors or other constituencies have actually changed their ideological commitments. And remember, that's the focus of my talk. Who has changed their ideological commitments? Um, inclusion might um, show an appearance where you see more moderates, but it might have nothing to do with changing ideological commitments and everything to do with elevating certain political actors and disadvantaging or isolating other political actors. Um, in Egypt, for example, um, the militant Islamist groups Jihad al-Islami and Gama Islamiyah have both gained considerable followings in the early 90s, um, in part because more moderate voices were shut out of the system. Um, in such a context, inclusion might increase moderation simply by reducing the support base for radicals. You're giving the support, pe general people who are not members of these groups, different um, places to go, different groups to support. Um, this seems to be really important qualification in arguing about inclusion and moderation to me. So um, I'm going to move quickly to this and get to my cases. Um, so what causes moderation in the sense of ideological change? Um, most of the literature, again, emphasizes the role of institutional constraints in shaping political, political behavior. So what does that mean? As states liberalize, for example, they create channels for legal participation. Um, and that creates opportunities for opposition groups to organize within those legal channels. That can be very important um, because it gives them ability to function legally, to put forth agendas, to try to mobilize supporters without being subject to state repression. 
But the cost of entry is, of course, playing by the rules of the game, agreeing to uh, government control of this whole process. Um, and remember, in these cases, the government isn't really committed to democratization. So they're quite aware of that. The opposition groups are aware of that. So political actors take advantage of these openings, um, but they also become constrained if they want to remain in the sphere of political legitimate political activity. So you have new opportunities, but since certain things you can't do, um, you can't challenge the state um, through the use of political violence, for example, if you want to function as a political party. So there's trade-offs. Um, so the argument of how this creates moderation in much of the liter literature is that groups become constrained by practical distractions, uh, maintaining an office and staff, producing programs, press releases, having interviews, coordinating with other parties, campaigning, trying to build a constituency, establishing relationships with government officials, and so on. So mm -hmm. through these varied mechanisms, political openings are said to provide both opportunities and constraints that support the inclusion moderation hypothesis. Um, Samuel Huntington is a big proponent of this. He calls participation moderation trade-off in his uh, uh, third wave book. Um, so, but the problem here is that this paradox of democracy still remains, is that how can we tell which groups are playing by the rules of the game, um, but harboring radical agendas, and which groups are really becoming more moderate ideologically as a result of that participation? Um, more importantly, why do similar groups participating in similar processes not become moderate in the same way? There has to be something more going on in the explanation. Um, and the third preliminary observation is that uh, claims are often made about inclusion of Islamist groups um, that were never radical in the first place. So there's a lot of discussion these days about the Wasit party in Egypt, the center party, which is an Islamist party. Uh, it's a very moderate party. To date, it has not been licensed. The government, uh, this is one of the interesting things, ways government control parties is so in Egypt, if you apply to be a political party, you have to say what your platform is, and the government will say, oh, well, this party already has a similar platform, so just go join that party. And they've denied the license to the Wasit party on that basis several times over and over. And that party is often the national, um, the government, the National Democratic Party, um, but not always. So the Wasit party is held in a, as an example of Islamists who have become more moderate, but in fact, if you look closely, the people that left the Wasit, the Wasit Party leaders came from the Muslim Brotherhood. The people that left the Muslim Brotherhood had always been much more moderate than the rest of the Muslim Brotherhood. So you have a case of a new, very moderate party emerging, but don't mistake this for their views have changed all, over time. Rather, they have simply left a party whose views did not agree with them, were, were not in line with their views. And I think that's an important distinction to make, and it's easy to see that as moderation, um, and it's an important political development, absolutely, but let's be clear that this isn't a case of people becoming more moderate and then leaving the party. It's rather leaving the party um, because they hadn't been um, in agreement with many of those platforms. So, to get to the point. In Faith and Moderation, uh, I compare this party in Jordan and this party in Yemen, um, two parties that are often cited as evidence that inclusion leads to moderation. Um, Part of the problem with these, like with the Wasit party, is both of these parties have always been very closely associated with the regime. So they were never really opposition parties. So they're not examples of bringing opposition into the government and they become more moderate. From their foundation of both of them, they were allied with the regime in various ways. Um, 
Even more, claims that these groups became moderate through inclusion, they're simply wrong. As I said, one, they were never really radical in the first place, and two, they were never really excluded in the first place. That doesn't mean we can't still use them for our purposes because what we're looking for is relative ideological change. Um, and so these are both groups that were genuine, uh, uh, generally moderate to begin with, and the question is, have they become more moderate over time? And if so, what are the processes by which that's happened? So the core question then is what explains this variation? Why did one of these Islamist groups become more moderate after beginning to participate in pluralist processes while the other one did not? Um, I should be clear, I think inclusion alone is not sufficient as an explanation. Something else has to be at work uh, in the case of the Jordanian case where I think it has become more moderate that was not working in the Yemeni case. So I'm gonna look quickly at uh, Jordan and Yemen comparatively um, to give you a sense of what these parties look like and the relationship of the party to the regime. And then I'm gonna draw a, a case, um, the, the process I think is happening and happened in Jordan that explains why I'm arguing this party has become more moderate, and then you can judge for yourself whether that's compelling. So um, these countries make great comparison because both of them liberalized or opened up the political system right around 1990. Jordan opened up in 1989. There were a series of protests. Um, the government had responded to a lot of economic crises that have the value of the dinar. There were a lot of other economic problems. Um, started lifting subsidies as a result of an IMF um, structural adjustment program in the spring and April of 1989, and we have what we call bread riots. It wasn't only about bread, but their number of subsidies were lifted, prices shot up, doubled and tripled, and there were riots in the south of Jordan. So the king tried to decide what he was going to do to respond to this, and he decided he was going to open up the political system. Now this is a common, um, it would be nice if it were more common, but this is not an uncommon um, uh, tactic, which is to distract your population with something else while you're undergoing economic reforms. But it legitimately opened up the political system. Jordan had been under martial law since 1967. Um, it had periodic elections, but they really didn't matter a whole lot. And so it was actually opening up the political system. Political parties were legalized. Press was allowed to function freely. There were two dozen parties emerged. Some 30 newspapers weekly and daily emerged in the first year and a half. So you really did see a legitimate substantive political opening in Jordan. Um, the year after this happens is the uh, second Gulf War, if you count the Iran-Iraq War in the 80s as the first, so the 1990-91 Gulf War, um, for which Jordan decided to remain um, neutral. It wouldn't support the U.S.-led coalition. So there are all kinds of protests in Jordan around this in support of, um, not in support of uh, Kuwait or in support of Iraq per se, but more against the U.S. intervention. So widespread protests soon after Jordan opens the system. It says it's going to allow these protests, and it does allow these protests, but it puts the regime in a difficult situation. Um, and one of the things that it does is, it, it, well, it gets its foreign aid cut. Uh, from the United States unilaterally cuts all aid to Jordan for a couple year period because Jordan did not support the regime or re re support the intervention. Um, but one of the things the regime does then is it tries still to keep these diverse opposition groups in the government. So among the people leading the protests are Islamists um, from the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and, it, and the government gives the Islamists five cabinet positions, um, which is the first time um, since this opening where the party gets to have um, people in these prominent positions. Muslim Brotherhood leader, leaders had had some cabinet positions before in the early 70s, like education, higher education, but they got five cabinets, uh, five slots in the new cabinet, which was significant. 
Um, they were not effective in these. They got uh, ministries like um, water, social services, um, electricity. So basically service areas that were in a disastrous state, they couldn't really accomplish a whole lot. And sure enough, the Islamists were open to widespread criticism for not being effective and also for putting forth um, some very conservative programs such as um, fathers were not allowed to watch their daughters compete in gymnastic exercises because that would be looking at young women. Um, and so this was held up as an example. They did a lot of other things. They tried to do a lot of other things. But this example was held up as, look how ridiculous and repressive and backward these guys are. And they actually lost some support because this became this um, example of, is this who you really want in government? Um, the next, so Jordan goes about trying to repair its relationships with Washington. And what's the one thing Jordan can really wa offer Washington at this point is peace with Israel. And so from uh, 93, well actually 91, we have the beginning of the peace process. Um, Jordan is having talks with Washington over the um, possibility of a peace treaty. So the first elections are 1989. The section ele second elections are 1993. So this process is well underway. The 1989 elections, Islamists won 40% of the seats. Uh, leftists and socialists, communists and liberals, independents, opposition groups won 20% of the seats. So 60% of the parliament is oppositional, self-described opposition. They don't coordinate with each other. They could have, and they could have done a lot of changes, but they don't coordinate with each other. They're arch rivals. They refuse to talk to each other. Um, 1993, the government changes the elections law because we don't really like this kind of outcome. So they do studies, which I've seen, um, polling, and they restructure the electoral system in a way that produces a much more compliant pro-regime assembly, which they get. And they have to have this assembly because if they sign a peace treaty the following year, it has to then be ratified. And so you need to be really sure that your assembly is going to approve that because that would be pretty disastrous. Um, the new assembly, I can talk, if you're just in the details of the electoral law, I can talk about that in questions. But they changed the law and essentially um, Islamists and the opposition parties together win about a third of the seats. And that's a nice number because you have a stronger than a majority that's pro-government, but you still have enough opposition seats out there. And that's actually what one minister told me they were aiming to achieve, and they did, in fact, achieve that. Um, it's at this point, um, with the changing of the electoral law, a year later the peace treaty is signed in 1994. It's at this point that we say Jordan's opening, which was a real remarkable opening. I mean, I, it really, I think it really was significant. I don't know how far the regime always intended it to go, but it was a real opening. Um, much of this was reversed. So um, uh, new restrictions were put forth on newspapers. So if you wanted to open a newspaper, you had to put in government banks close to $750,000 if you were a weekly paper, just in case you had violations and they took fines against you that had that money in reserve. So most people could not come up with this type of um, capital, and so many of the newspapers closed in 1997. This uh, went on in 1997. They finally closed. The government continues with its um, um, economic reforms and lifting of subsidies. So you have protests around that, but you basically see a closing of the system. Okay, so initial opening, um, the peace treaty is the pivotal moment, closing of the system. Um, parties still operate, there's elections still held, et cetera. Um, the elections are free and fair. They don't allow international monitors, but I've, I've been on formal monitoring missions in other countries and I've been to Jordan. 
and there's no doubt the elections are for the most part free and fair. But the, the electoral system has been structured in a way to produce a certain kind of outcome. You know, this isn't unusual. It's not uh, particular to the third world. The debate about districting Texas is probably an example you're familiar with. It's something that happens quite commonly. But um, in Jordan, which is not a democracy, they can basically introduce whatever kind of system they want. And they did, and they get the type of assembly that they like um, and claim 55% turnout, which doesn't seem likely, but that's okay. Okay, so Jordan, by comparison, opens in 1990 for very different reasons. There's a North and South Yemen, which have never been united, um, um, always have been independent countries, and they decide that they're going to unite, and they unite in 1990. Um, they don't have elections until 1993, but from 1990 with unification, political parties are legalized, newspapers open up, and it, much like Jordan, you see this just extraordinary opening up of democratic process, processes and flourishing um, of these activities, you know, wide open political debate, critiques of the regime, I mean, things you don't see in a lot of non-democratic countries, really quite extraordinary. Um, some tribal groupings are all holding primaries so that they can decide which of their candidates are going to stand in national elections, all kinds of alliances among different parties as they emerge and register. So absolutely fascinating time, an absolutely real political opening as well in the early 90s. 1993, they have, um, the first elections, um, which produce an assembly that's no party has a majority. The former party of the North had the largest block, uh, an Islamist party has the second largest block, and the Socialist Party from the South has a small block. Together, there's 65 percentage of the seats. Then you have tiny other parties and independents. You have a you know a hugely pluralist assembly, which again is quite remarkable. Um, the problem in Yemen's case is you haven't completed all the details of unification and the North and South are still maintaining separate armies. Um, the North is um, uh, dominating in ways when now it it's, um, leads this new unity government, a coalition government. The Islamists are actually allied with the Northern regime against the South. So the North is really dominating the South. Uh, and in the spring of 1994, a number of things take place. One of the things that took place is the capital is supposed to rotate between Sana'a, which was the capital of the north, and Aden, which was capital of the south. And the north just said, oh, we're not going down to Aden this year in the winter. So there were a number of things like this which were very confrontational. Um, and the south finally said this isn't real uh, democracy anymore. And um, some of the leaders decided they were going to protest. Some of them talked about succession. It ends in a brief but nonetheless bloody civil war. Um, between the two armies and the North wins. Now the North, which now dominates and has won, is still claiming unity, democracy, etc. You still have elections, um, but that very first pluralist assembly never exists in that form again. The next elections are held in 1997. Um, so the, I, let me go back to 1994 after the, um, the Civil War. The Islamists, which were allied with the regime of the North, the party of the North, get a lot of cabinet positions. Interestingly, very similar positions to what the Islamists got in Jordan, which are these sort of service ministries, ministries where it's hard to accomplish a lot. There's already so much corruption, very little resources, all kinds of crazy things. Just to give one example, um, the dinar, or the, the Yemeni rial used to be 11 rials to a dollar. But if you went to a bank, they're like, don't change your money here. It's 120 to a dollar on the street. So nobody actually used the official rate. So um, the Minister of Water and Electricity was telling me that he was given a certain amount of money 
But the guy from, he was an Islamist. The guy from the other party at the, who was running the National Bank was going to give him this money at the official rate, which was a ridiculously small amount of money. But it's like, well, that's what I'm giving you. And he said, well, other ministries are getting you know, dollars and they can change it however they want. So there are all kinds of these, you know, sparring um, between the Islamists and the government of the North, even though the Islamists continue to say they're allied with the North. Um, 1997, there's a question. Again, the, the socialists are off the scene. They actually boycott the election. They're technically still a party and they've run recently again. Um, but again, you have this initial opening that's a very real moment uh, in this case, you have a war and the defeat of the South, and now you have the North consolidating the government. It looks much like Egypt looks, where you have a party, and the party still has to win seats. Um, the, the president last week stood for election and had to win his seat again. Um, but in reality, nobody mistakes this for a substantive, meaningful contest anymore. Just as a footnote, the presidential election last week had a real opposition candidate, which was stunning, um, partly because the United States pushed it to allow a real oppositional candidate. The last presidential election in 1999, the oppositional candidate was from the same party as the president. So wasn't really an oppositional candidate. In fact, he jokingly said, well, of course I'm going to vote for President Ali Abdullah Saleh. Um, this time around, some of the Islamists and socialists, actually there was a real opposition candidate. Um, and I throw that out as a caveat and talk about the US's pressure to allow that to happen because I think the United States uh, gets wrong very often ways to push for openings. They got this right. I think it really did push the government, and the government concedes, and the opposition parties say, we never would have had a shot of putting a real opposition candidate up if there hadn't been this pressure. Um, nonetheless, the candidate lost, but the president, instead of winning by 99.97% of the votes, won some 70% of the vote, which was significant. Okay, so that's as a caveat. So we have these two cases. We have openings and then closings for very different reasons, but the timing is quite similar. So why does Jordan's Yemen party become more moderate, do I say? Um, well, when it first comes in, 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 it has these ministries, it's not working with anyone else. Refuses to ally with socialists and liberals and leftists. Refuses talk to talk to anybody. It's, we're the only game in town and we're just going to do what we want. Um, in 1991, um, the government in Jordan puts forth a new constitution. And key point of debate in the constitution is the language of the role of Islamic law. And it's a subtle phrase, but it basically is, is Islamic law going to be the source of inspiration for law or a source of inspiration for law? For the Islamists, it has to be the source of inspiration. This is a non-debatable issue. Um, but this is going to be voted on in parliament. So the Islamists are now sitting in parliament with an assembly that's 20% um, um, leftist, socialist, communist who do not want Islamic law to be the source of law. And they have this huge debate about what they're going to do within the party. And they basically kind of panic. They're like, we've said we're committed to democracy. We've said we're going to participate. But now we have to go into the parliament and vote on an issue that is a non-negotiable issue for us. So if we vote no, essentially we're saying that democratic process is above our commitment to Sharia. Because if we say that's going to go forward on that level, we're saying that's more important. So we can't vote. But what do we do? So they have these huge debates, and they decide that they're not going to um, 
change their view, but they're not going to vote at all, and they don't show up to Parliament that day. They show up other days. Um, but it's an extraordinary moment, and it causes lots of problems within the party. Um, still no cooperation with leftists. But at this point, they say it's okay for the communists and socialists to vote as long as they're not atheists. So as long as they're Muslims who simply adopt leftist ideologies, that's okay with us. And that was one of the reasons that they said they weren't going to, uh, they were going to allow the process to go forward. They wouldn't personally vote, but they weren't going to challenge the process on its own terms. Um, going into the 1993 elections, the government changes the elections law, and what happens? All the opposition parties are at a disadvantage by the new law. So the opposition parties decide that they're going to get together collectively and hold press conferences to oppose it. And they do this, and it's the very first time that they coordinate activities. Now, since 1990, they have been engaged in a lot of assemblies, and uh, there's a debate about the National Charter where they're sitting together and meeting each other for the first time and talking together. But this is the first time they actually set out to coordinate something to critique the government. And they do this, and they collectively put forth alternative laws, which, of course, aren't uh, adopted. Um, when they lose so many seats in 1993 elections, there is emergence of a formal opposition bloc with all these opposition parties. Now, they cooperate quite regularly and routinely with each other. They call each other on the phone all the time. They invite each other over for uh, iftar during Ramadan. Um, so you've gone from a situation where they're arch rivals to um, they cooperate with them quite unproblematically now. So this I'm talking is evidence that they have become more moderate. Things that weren't even justifiable to them before have become okay now, as long as they're not atheists. That's the red line. Um, and there's certain issues on which they won't debate things if they think uh, Sharia law, Islamic law, has a very clear argument. They won't put it open for debate. But they cooperate quite um, routinely with groups that used to be ideological rivals. So that, I think, is evidence that they have become more moderate. And it's evidence you don't see in Yemen. And I don't have time to go into the Yemen case, I can. But it's evidence you don't see in Yemen. So what explains that? Um, I argue that it explains, it can be explained not by these formal external statements that they put forth, but by internal processes of deliberation and justification within the party itself. And so what does that mean? When they decide to participate in elections, they have this internal debate. Is Islam and democracy, are they compatible or not? They decide they're compatible and they put forth all sorts of statements to this effect. Having done that, they now face the question, what about these other groups who are also claiming to share this commitment, particularly the um, socialist and communist parties, to which they have an internal debate and say, well, it's okay as long as they're not atheists. As long as they're good Muslims, it's fine. Um, so there's this series of debates around what to do um, and justifications, and each time they rationalize and justify something, it creates other possibilities. So it's not a path-dependent argument in that once you start down this road, there's no way back. But it is an argument that having tried to significantly justify on ideological grounds adopting new practices, that's to say not just saying, oh, we're going to do it strategically, but we still believe something else. They're really trying to reconcile it with their views. Having done that over a series of decisions, over a series of deliberations, and I've given you just one of many examples, um, their core commitments are very different than they were uh, five to ten years ago. Five to ten years from 1989, you see significant change. You can see this in their statements. You see this in internal party documents. You see this in um, a number of cases where there are these 
quite contentious debates about whether things are acceptable or not. They videotape them and they circulate it among the membership and then they take a vote and then they decide to adhere formally to whatever that outcome is. You see these changes that are not superficial changes. And these are changes internal to the party, but not just for public consumption. I think by looking here, just as one place to look, it's not the only place, you can see where you have actually um, have changes in ideological commitments. Again, they need not necessarily go in a more moderate direction. They could easily go elsewhere. But I think it is possible to demonstrate how that change has happened and to find evidence that is more compelling than just the public statements where everyone claims to be a Democrat. I mean, the, the Syrian president claims to be a Democrat, and we certainly don't take that seriously. So there's always this question out there of where someone's core commitments lie. Um, I think I'm going to stop there. Um, I can draw the, just to give a, uh, a short, quick thing on Yemen, that you don't see these processes in Yemen. One of the things that happens in the Yemen party is the Yemen party is internally fragmented. So the Jordanian party takes these decisions, they're contentious, but they abide by them and they become formal policy of the party. The Yemeni party is fragmented from the beginning. There's different factions that never really get along. The party issues statements publicly that someone else in the party immediately contradicts. So for example, um, it issues a statement saying all political actors, as long as they're not atheists, are legitimate to participate in elections, to which um, Majid Zindani, who's a uh, real extremist, says, you know, socialists are infidels and all good Muslims should kill them. Um, and this is going into the support. So this is the people from the same party. He's a elected leader of the party. Not the chair, but he's the elected spiritual guide of the party. So in the Yemeni party, you're constantly seeing this contradiction of where our commitments lie. In the Jordanian party, they're quite literally trying to hash them out and come to agreement, like what can we abide by and what's too far? Um, uh, and so the fact that you don't see this in um, these processes of justification that really redraw the ideological commitments uh, in Yemen is because they don't have these internal deliberations, but they don't have those because the party is fragmented from the beginning. So I will stop there. Questions? Yes. Uh, if I understood you correctly, you focused on Sunni Islamic parties. Here. Well, the two cases are Sunni, but it's not part of the explanation. No. In terms of moderates and radicals, yes. in terms of yes. relations yes. to the regime? Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, for the first case, I don't look at Shiite parties. Um, in these, I just picked two parties for the purpose of they looked very similar in many ways and had different outcomes on this variable. So it was, it was, they were chosen for that case. Um, there are no Shiite parties in Jordan. Um, 
Yemen is complicated in a fascinating way. Um, so the regime, which is not an Islamic party, that's the uh, General People's Com Congress, Hezbollah Mu'tamar al-Shabi al-Am, is Zaidi. Zaidis are Shi, but we don't call that a Shi regime. Um, but their practices often are in conflict with some of the more Wahhabi-inspired Islamists over the Shi-Sunni um, tension, just as you see some of the Wahhabi Saudi-influenced Islamists in conflict with other Sunnis in um, Yemen. And that's reflected in some of the tensions between the political parties. But it's not, it's, I don't do it as a central focus, and I really only studied these two parties in detail. I interviewed people. Um, there is actually a Zaidi party, Hizbil Haq, um, which is a Shi, calls, calls itself a Shi Zaidi Islamist party in Yemen. I interviewed people there, but I didn't study the inner workings of the party. But that would certainly be an area that, you know, for further comparative analysis, I mean, absolutely. What, then what are the differences in that, particularly differences in, you know, decision-making processes internal to the party? Um, but not my focus of my research. On the Muslim Brotherhood, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, they come from a similar movement. I mean, the first one was in Egypt, of course, um, with Hassan al-Banna, and you have branches that emerged elsewhere, often directly by people coming from um, uh, Egypt or people that went to Egypt to study. But yes, it's not a single movement. It makes no sense to compare it you know, as a global transnational movement with branches in each country. At the same time, they're not disconnected. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood, as under Hassan al-Banna, of course, was very reformist. It was working from inside of a society. The idea was you can't just change a regime and get it right on Islamic terms the people have to be, the society has to be rebuilt. And one of the core ways that happens is through education, you know, building a society of good Muslims, because um, if you don't have good Muslims, you can't, it doesn't matter if the government is right. Um, and among the progressive things they did was advance women's education, because women who raise children can't be good Muslims if they can't read the Quran either. So they were at the forefront of promoting women's education. So you would definitely put them on the moderate spectrum, absolutely, in terms of working from within. Um, and yet, um, socialists and communists and leftist friends I talk to say, do not mistake, their ultimate objective is very different from our ultimate objective. And so I think for analysis, it's sort of teasing out those differences are important. That's why I try to avoid the moderate versus radical as clearly defined camps, um, because they're not. Uh, a group that might be moderate on democratic questions might be radical on participation of women or radical on foreign investment and economic reform. There's not a single continuum that makes a lot of sense. Um, so to the extent you use that language, moderates and radicals, I think we ought to be very precise. Um, they're moderates politically, for sure. Um, other other um, sectors, not, not as much. It varies. Other questions? Yes? Um, the political spectrum that you have been painting for us, both for Jordan and, and Yemen, at times where you define the whole uh, situation as inclusive, mm -hmm. conducive to migration, is a very rich political spectrum. Am I correct? Absolutely. So, so the, from, from uh, you know, you, as you say, you cannot find, uh, you cannot define one particular Islamist mm -hmm. uh, party in uh, so my, my question is, how does that compare to basically the two political system um, regime, if that, that we have in the states? And the mechanisms of participation, and once you make that comparison, then uh, could you kindly um, 
articulate what is therefore the premise of the notion, the discursive notion of democracy. Yeah, that's a great question. That's a, a book, I think, actually, and it's a wonderful question. Um, so I'll try. I'll do my best to answer it. Um, I think there's a lot that's extraordinarily similar between these countries and the United States in terms of ways you manipulate the system, um, groups' incentives to enter the system or not. Um, you enter because you think it's a better avenue than remaining outside of the system, basically. Um, the big difference is that these countries are not democracies. There's no hope you're really going to win elections at this stage. Um, so groups participate for other purposes in, in, in mind, to change particular policies, just to try to gain constituencies over time. Some of them might think they're going to win elections. These Islamist groups I've talked to, uh, at least the leaders I've talked to over the past decade, have no, they don't, they don't think they have, ever have a chance of winning elections, winning a majority. Then that's not the reason they're there. They're there because they want to be part of the public dialogue, the sort of official debate. Um, and you need to be there. Um, and so I think there's a lot of similarities, as I talk about the gerrymandering, you know, incentives to be inclusive. Where you draw the red lines of who gets excluded is, you know, groups that are violent toward the state get excluded pretty much in any regime. Um, discursively, and this is something I address in my book, is there's certain dominant narratives that the states will engage in and others engage in and challengers engage in. And democracy is one of them. I mean, very few, save maybe the Taliban, there are probably others, but very few regimes or governments say they're not de democratic, you know, and we know every country's not democratic, but they have different qualifications for it. Um, so it's this dominant narrative that kind of everyone needs to engage in. So you engage it on your own terms. So the regimes tend to say, yes, we're democratic and we want to become democratic, if only economic situation was better, we weren't threatened by Salafi radicalists and Al-Qaeda's running around our backyard and we can't do that now because look what would happen. Now, I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong, but it is a set of excuses they give for not actually ever pushing it forward. Um, in terms of whether inclusion in these types of cases is different in its effects than inclusion in a democracy, absolutely, because ultimately what can really be achieved is very different. Um, you're, ask, you're asking about moderation in a context where you can't say democratic processes are making them moderate because there are no real democratic processes. Um, you have half open processes. And so I think that's an interesting point of comparison. Um, and that's one of the problems of the comparisons with the leftist socialist groups, social democrats earlier on, where those processes were more meaningfully democratic than we're talking about here. And so I think that's a point, an important point of comparison. But it's a, it's a big question. I mean, I don't know if you want to have other well, thoughts I, on it. I mean, I'm, thinking, I'm, I'm thinking of democracy as a hegemonic discourse, hmm. right? Notions of democracy as a hegemonic discourse. Right. And our, our, you know, our presumptions and our, our pretensions that, 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 that we know what it is mm -hmm. and we articulate it and if you work you know, within that discursive system, then you are democratic. If you don't, then you are not democratic. And we, you mean like the Western, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Um, so then, then, the, then, then I think about Ralph Nader, right? And the, the, the remote, remote possibility of, of a party such as this, even beginning to participate in our democratic mechanisms. And I'm thinking of, okay, for instance, I mean, you know, just to be the devil's advocate, if you have the, 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 the Republican, uh, Republican Party and the, and, the, um, and the Democratic Party functioning very democratically in the state, um, when, when it comes to foreign policy, for instance, can you argue that there 
policies impact are the same, and therefore, mm -hmm. then what you know, what 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 difference does it make which party they belong to? So, so my, my problem is is this you know our assumption of hegemonic discourse, and in, and and making that as a model a discourse that not I I, I am hard uh, pressed to to see how it functions in our own. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I do think it is a hegemonic discourse, but what it means in different places and how it's deployed very significantly. And so part of the point of analysis is precisely to unpack that. So why is it Ralph Nader is messing with American democracy by putting forth this candidacy? And there's a lot of people who are still angry at him, as you know. And in some ways, there's interesting comparisons with what some groups in the Middle East are trying to achieve, and that is to change the terms of public debate. It doesn't matter if you win or not. If you can change the terms of public debate, that can be extraordinary. Um, and we saw that with when Ross Perot was standing at a three-president podium, it was a bit different because um, you don't just have those two parties anymore. So I think in that way that you know there's some interesting similarities. Um, but again, of our two-party system as problematic as it is, which of those parties wins is could always go back and forth. And in these other cases, there's no question for the most part. Just a point on that, real real quick, um, between Jordan and Yemen, one of the interesting points about uh, parties changing public debate is you can have, in a lot of ways, more open debate under a monarchy, because the monarchy doesn't have to win, um, than you do in Egypt and Yemen, where you have an official party that's going to win anyways, but they still have to engineer this pretending winning, pretend win. So in some ways, you see more open debate under monarchies in strange ways. Not always, but not consistently, but yeah. Well, I don't know what immediate effect I've had. I, uh, and I don't mean that just in a sort of semi-funny way, but I mean, I, I do get invited. I mean, I've uh, gone to Qatar twice at these Brookings Institution conferences to present this research. You know, I get invited to a lot of think tanks. I'll turn down almost no invitation from the U.S. government except from the CIA, um, and I get tons of invitations, and I'll go to all of them because, you know, I'm part of, uh, and I, I have colleagues that critique me for that, but I'm part of the crowd that you can't just sit here and critique the government and never try to actually have a conversation with them. It's absurd. Um, so I will try to do that. To the extent it's effective, I don't know. I do think, and from my discussions with um, off-the-record CIA analysts that I won't sit with publicly, but we're friends. Um, we run into each other all over the place. State Department, a lot of military analysts. I have a couple students as well um, that are in intelligence. They pretty much buy completely this type of argument. Now, it doesn't necessarily, what this argument does not say is you ought to include them and they'll become more moderate, because I'm clear that I'm not saying that. It does say exclusion is not such a good plan, so we need to find alternatives. So people have asked me, what does this say for Hamas? Is Hamas going to become more moderate? So the answer is it depends on if they legitimately try to justify their ideology and deal with this over the course. At the outset, I can't say. But you did see early on putting forth you know, technocrats and pragmatists to try to actually run things effectively. So I think there's a lot in this work that helps inform our understanding of that rather than focus on, you know, oh, they're militants, end of discussion. So it, I think it gives us other things to look at to try to pay attention to. 
I hope it has an impact, but I'm humble in that. Yeah. The election process you're talking about, the expenses, mm -hmm. I wonder how much of buy-in there is from the population. What, what kind of turnouts are they getting? It's obviously for election nobody can win except you've been predetermined, but how many people are voting? Well, in both of the first ones, you had extraordinary turnout, and you had an extraordinary, as I said, really a pluralist outcome. I mean, it surprised, I think, the governments even. Not in, in Yemen, it was unification. So you knew there was going to be a pluralist turnout because you had two parties. There was no single dominant party. Um, in Jordan, I mean, the government and the Islamists all sort of articulated, we didn't think it was going to be this pluralist. Um, over time, it's much and much less so. Um, partly because the government has changed the structure. So, so just the, quickly what happened in Jordan, there's multi-member districts. So it's not one seat per district in first past the post wins. There's multi-member districts from two to nine seats. It used to be you got as many votes as you had seats, and you could distribute them however you liked. So if you were in a district with nine seats, you could put nine seats for one person or divide them up however. The way that effectively produced an outcome was people would vote for your local poobah who is going to get things for you and get you jobs, but then you could vote for this party or that party that you liked as well. And that was reflected. Now, it's, uh, they call it South Wahid, one vote, but it's still multi-member district. It's a single non-transferable vote. So you get one vote, you can only vote for one person, and so people tend to vote for your local notable, which tends to be a more loyalist voice um, in the end, and that's why the parties are doing poorly. This was understood by the government as what was going to happen and what they intended to happen, and they hired U.S. political scientists to help them restructure the electoral system, and they got exactly what they wanted. So now you can have free and fair elections because you're still going to get the kind of outcome you want. The second problem with the Jordanian system is you have a majority Palestinian population, and we can't have a majority Palestinian assembly, as we all know. So what do you do? Um, seats are distributed in unequally. In the South, which there's very few Palestinians, um, there'll be one seat for every three to 4,000 people. In and around Amman, you have one seat for every 20 to 30,000 people. You also have refugee camps aren't single districts, so you have a loyalist area here and a little chunk of this refugee camp belongs there, and a little chunk belongs here. So they've done everything they can to reduce the number of Palestinian voices, particularly Palestinian voices from the camps that are going to be the strongest advocates of turn over the peace treaty, sever relations, you know, U.S. out. Yes? Can you go over um, some of those internal mechanisms that indicate more moderation? Well, I'm posing only one, uh, which is the process of trying to justify. So you have these opportunities, strategic opportunities. We can form a party. We can do these things. We can sit on this assembly. Mm -hmm. um, I'm looking at it only, not as an exhaustive mechanism, but the mechanism of trying to justify it ideologically and seriously and then abiding by that commitment as other things come up. So you could take a decision and then abandon it down the road, but now we've decided that everybody's allowed to participate. Now we can't go back on that. So it makes other things possible down the road. It makes leftist pop, uh, Islamist leftist cooperation possible because there have been a number of points at which you've said that that's not problematic. There are certainly other ones. I mean, a number of the things that are put forth are the, the sort of um, the daily constraints on, you know, running a party, you know, not just getting letterhead and, you know, finding offices and funding staff, et cetera. I mean, those are some of them that are 
routinely put out there. And they do tend to have, there's a huge parties literature in political science and American policy that looks precisely at these processes. It's really well established. In the social movements literature, which is interdisciplinary, you have the sort of movements into parties and following that process. So there's a lot of those specific mechanisms are drawn out. I'm trying to pick one that focuses on ideological change. Are you looking at precedents too? Like precedents in? Yes, I have to see change, mm -hmm. and not just change in terms of you know internal commitments, but then change where there's where they're forced to act on. Are we now committed to what we decided a year ago? Mm -hmm. And not just one time; it needs to be iterated. It needs to happen over several issues for me to feel confident mm -hmm. that they're now committed to this more pluralist, normative, open view. And you're looking at internal documents. Only internal. And I actually, well, I compare them with external, but part of the point is to say externally everybody claims to be a Democrat, and internally I think you get a more clear representation of where parties' commitments actually lie and where they're changing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in the Yemen case, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, is the internal core, the administrative core of the party. I think they've changed in similar ways to the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood. But the whole party has all these other factions, and the party as a whole hasn't changed because it never really, it doesn't debate things. The same people keep getting elected, elected to the same positions over and over. In Jordan, you can hold a, a, a chairmanship for two years and you're done. And now you've seen you know, seven different chairmen in the party, and that's extraordinary. Yeah, there's like lots of, so the, um, I don't think either case you'd see the country saying, no, this is against Sharia, and so we're not going to support it. Jordan, they're actively trying to promote a sort of, you know, Western liberal model. The government is very clear on that, liberation of women, you know, uh, veiling is a right just as much as not veiling is a right. Um, and so everyone should be able to do whatever they want, and they'll defend everyone's right to do whatever they want. Um, in Yemen, I think the country, it's a much more conservative country, and the incidence of uh, head coverings um, have dramatically increased uh, since unification, well, not since unification, since the defeat of the socialists in the South. So when I'm in the South talking to socialists, they're complaining now, you know, everybody's wearing head coverings. Um, I don't think the government cares either way. The government of Ali Abdullah Saleh cares either way. I don't think he's a committed Islamist and strategic and public consumption. But if that gets him the constituencies that support what he wants to do, okay. You know, allow that to happen. But it's not a law, and I couldn't see it becoming a law, but I don't think in Yemen he would care if it became a law. I think Jordan, the monarchy in Jordan, we'd be actively opposed to it. Um, but it's interesting, so this narrative about like, like what are the dominant narratives, um, Islam is one of them. 
You know, they both are Islamic states. Um, uh, Jordan, the king, um, not, not so much now, but the king had claimed a lot of legitimacy on overseeing the two holy places in Jerusalem, much like the Saudi monarchy, you know, claiming to oversee the, the holy places in Saudi Arabia. So he claimed that, and you see it on stamps and textbooks, you know, through the 60s, and then, of course, you lost control of them, and they continued to do that for a while. But to some extent, they claim legitimacy on being Muslim, being Islamic. The regime the, the, it says right in the Constitution that president, the leaders, they have to be Muslim, um, even in Jordan, even though you have a, a Christian minority. Um, so here we talk about, like, um, democracy as this dominant narrative, which is functioning. You have Islam as another narrative that's functioning, and everybody's trying to play it off of each other. So one of the things the regimes, regimes will do is, like, uh, and Egypt's a good example of this, is we're Islamic. We're authentically Islamic, and we have, you know, Al-Azhar, all these sheikhs supporting us on this. It's these other guys that are not in the true spirit of Islam, the militants, et cetera, et cetera. And so you have this kind of dueling authority around Islam, um, sparring about democracy as well. And then the third is sort of national unity. You can't be against national unity. And so this poses some challenge for some Islamists, not all of them, but some Islamists who aspire to an Islamic nation globally, you know, Islamic Ummah is a general community, shouldn't be constrained by these artificial state borders. Um, that's a constraint because you can't put forth that claim and be a political party in a country that's saying, no, country comes first. And so I, I think it's, it's a, a point of tension. But those narratives kind of functioning simultaneously, um, for me what's interesting is tracking movements, trying to negotiate through them. If that, is it, but the, No, no, please. That's great. Um, you kind of going back to the internal work of the Jordanians and whether or not you mentioned that the Jordanian Islamic groups or did, did seem to have an internal democratic process of election. Of course, you can see many groups that didn't have mm -hmm. internal democratic processes. Yet you mentioned before that the Yemen group came out with a press release and then the head chairman um, contradicted it. No, that's crap. Right. So Well, they have, in Yemen, they do have a democratic process. It just doesn't really function democratically because you see the same people constantly in the same seats. And it's sort of a foregone conclusion of what's going to happen. Um, a lot of that comes from the Muslim Brotherhood, that you have these internal workings that no single person in the party should monopolize it because that's not the kind of Muslim party this is. So, you, you know, you might have a spiritual guide, but, you, you know, the administrative roles ought to change. So... Um, I mean, it could, you could see it trickling down. I mean, you certainly don't see it trickling down in Yemen. Um, the question then, and this goes to what I mentioned about the Wasit party earlier on, is are the moderates in the Yemeni party going to just break off and form their own party, or are the radicals just going to say, we're done with this? And I think that's more likely to be what happens, to be the fate of that party, 
rather than uh, emerging democratic processes change from inside, because we're now 15 years out and it hasn't really uh, changed as much. Um, any other questions? Yeah. Um, you mentioned that from 's a great question it gets to the thing I was going to mention about women this article I have on women um, and it also emphasizes why we can't just call a group moderate or radical the women's issue is an issue on which the party hasn't really advanced in, in Jordan hasn't advanced any kind of progressive agenda um, they're in favor of women voting I mean they put forth women candidates uh, they never put forth women candidates until the last election the government introduced a six quota seats for women so if women uh, win on their own, then that takes up one of the quota seats. But if they don't, then the women that won the highest percentage of their district um, get those seats. And so Islamists said, well, heck, we're going to put some women candidates out there. And they do. And they have, I think, three of the seats. But two of the seats, it's questionable whether they were really Islamists or not. One clearly is. Um, but so what's interesting about the, their position on women? So um, the puzzle is, and this is true, I won't talk about Yemen much, but in Yemen and Jordan, the, of all the political parties, communist, leftist, socialist, liberal, everybody, the highest women elected to internal administrative positions of parties are in Islamist parties. Elected to the leadership, the highest level of leadership, except for the ultimate you know, chair of the party or whatever. So why is this? Why did these other parties not have women moving forward. That's an easy answer. They're run by octogenarians and they're not giving up control to anyone, even people that are you know, under 80 years old. Um, so that's an, an aside. But here's this fascinating case. Why are women being elevated in the party? And the, um, the short answer is, for the most part, the women that do well in the party are wives and daughters and sisters of other prominent party leaders. Um, they're highly educated. Um, but what's interesting is there's in uh, neither the parties, and I'll stick with the Jordan one, um, there is no program for the advancement of women. There's no discussion. We need to educate women and get them out there better. Um, it's simply we want to win elections. So how are the women doing so well? And the women are just smart as you can imagine. So what happens is when the leadership of the party is distracted with something else, for example, the peace treaty was a big period, um, the women just start doing their own stuff. They start making alliances with other parties, and opening offices and renting office space, and just initiating programs on their own. Um, some of these parties are, some of these uh, activities are allowed to stand. Some of them are shut down immediately as soon as they kind of the male leadership wises up and is like, oh crap, what are we going to do? Mm -hmm. um, and one of the techniques that both of the parties did was they said they, the internal party bureau has eight parts, so it's like education, society, politics, economics, these different eight party branches, um, eight offices. So they said, we're going to give women the same eight offices and we're going to put you in you know, the suburbs out there and you can do whatever you want. So they found a way to marginalize it. So they're consistently trying to marginalize the women. The women are just smart and they're consistently saying, no. I, mean, I was at one um, Shura Council meeting where the first woman that was elected to the Shura Council is out arguing men there and she made a mistake she showed up thinking she could out argue them she had prepared and they didn't want to argue they were just like what are you doing who is she what is she doing here and a lot of them is she's like she's like they don't even know it's not that they can out argue me they're just 
they're here for other reasons. So um, they're struggling, and they're struggling within the party because they're committed to Islamist politics. Um, and I interviewed, we have an article in Comparative Politics on this with Janine Clark. Um, they're very committed to it, um, but it's not because the parties have these progressive agendas that they've advanced. It's because they've gotten out there and fought and fought and fought and fought. Um, camp own campaign money for internal party elections. Um, often they just humiliate the other candidate if the guy's not really smart. They'll just it just becomes embarrassing, and then they'll win the seat that way. And then they have to show up to the Shura Council and fight with all the other Shura Council members who don't really want them there. Um, but the party abides by those outcomes, which is important. And the women have worked their way up, um, and most of the men don't want them there. And that's a fascinating study that just we just think there aren't Islamist women, or we think they're getting in there and doing advances because this party's moderate and promotes women. The Jordan party's not promoting women. They're doing it on their own, which makes it more extraordinary how fantastic they've been successful. Does that answer your question, sir? Okay. I want to, we want to stop here. Okay.